Hi, this is Mike McNamara, and you're listening to All Marine Radio on your home for it, the one and only All Warrior Radio Network. of All Marine Radio here on your home port, the All Warrior Radio Network. Hope you're having a, hope you had a good weekend. We're going to kind of take a look at the news. Uh, today, William Costantini will join me, and uh, and uh, so we'll look at the news today. A little bit of an in-depth look at the news, and um, and I'll tell you the stories that we're going to take a look at. Um, 
first one is uh, over the weekend. Um, there was an explosion at Iran's uh, nuclear facility where they're developing nuclear weapons, allegedly, right? Um, and so that in the news. Um, and uh, so uh, we'll talk about that. Um, and and when these things kind of happen through the wonders of the Internet, it's always kind of cool to be able to go to, you know, uh, publications in Israel uh, who immediately gets a finger pointed at them. I don't know if that's earned, that's probably earned by their reputation and the Mossad's reputation. Um, so, uh, but it's interesting to be able to go to, uh, you know, publications in these countries to see what they write. And, um, and then, you know, so you kind of spin the wheel on that, uh, to include Al Jazeera, which is, uh, an interesting read from a different perspective. So, so we'll take a look at that. Um, so, uh, so Will will join us here in about, I don't know, nine minutes or so. So we'll take a look at that. There's an article, um, that caught my eye and that is, uh, GAO reporting sees U S military readiness slipping. Exactly. What is that? So, um, we will take a look at that. Uh, what did the GAO find? And what the hell is slipping? And uh, is that, is that, is there observation? Is it valid? Is it not valid? And uh, so we'll take a look at that. Uh, that always catches your eye because, you know, at the end of the day, it's one of the things we talk about. Like, we could do all this other stuff. But readiness can't slip, right? Everybody know. Everybody understands that readiness has to be increasing, uh, excellence has to be increasing, operational readiness has to be an important thing. And when you see that it's not, uh, needless to say, that's concerning. Um, the next thing that's going on in the world that's pretty interesting is, uh, for whatever reason, Vladimir Putin is uh, is at it again. And uh, he is uh, massing troops along the border between uh, Russia and the Ukraine. So we'll, uh, we'll we'll talk about that a little bit too. Like what's going on there, and uh, why is he doing that? Um, and so, and then uh, if we have time, uh, the uh, I think it's the fourth story, the fourth topic in the news that we'll talk about is um, a suicide in the United States went down last year. And I'm curious what Will would, what Will has to say about that. Um, why does he think that happened? So here we have, uh, I think everybody's instinct was, uh, you know, it's going to be a very difficult year. But, I mean, if you start to look at some of the things that we've seen, happen um i think americans paid off more debt last year than they have in years right i i saw a story about that um home purchases are up 
So, you know, you look around the country, so what's going on? <laughs> what's going on? Uh, I also think I read something that said Americans' rates of savings went up last year. Again, what's going on? You know, um, this was supposed to be, you know, Armageddon. Or at least, you know, I mean, think about it. Um, in the 20s, at the end of 1920s, right? The beginning of the Depression sets in. That will take us up to World War II. And so, um, and then in the middle of those 10 years between 1930, essentially, and 1940, you have the Dust Bowl that guts a lot of agriculture in the, the, the center part of the country. So you have the Depression and the Dust Bowl going on simultaneously and and that lasts for like 10 years okay so we go through not something as substantial but um you know i think in the lifetimes of most people it is most it is the largest national challenge uh that uh, the people have faced and so um you look at that and you say wait a minute in the midst of that suicide went down Makes sense of that to me. So, um, so we'll talk about uh, talk about all of that today. Yeah, all uh, in one hour. How about that? Or uh, yeah, hopefully an hour. So, uh, good morning to you. Um, what else is going on in the news? Anything uh, exciting in the world of Valmarin Radio? No, uh, no, excited. Uh, the uh, the graduate seminar happens again tonight. Um, so people that have already been through the ten week seminar, or ten week, uh, t- turned out to be eight sessions. But uh, um, we'll do the second installment of that, and uh, kind of cool. I think we'll see what happens. <laughs> I think it's a good idea. Um, but we will. Uh, we had a, a speaker last week, General Furness and his wife, Linda, uh, came on and uh, and talked about their experience with post-traumatic winning. So it was very cool, very cool discussion. And then, um, but this week we're just kind of going to do open mic. And that is, so um, what what's on your mind relative to, you know, what you've learned, what you've seen, you know, and uh, and I'd be curious to hear what this group has to say about why suicide went down in the country in a year that many people would say was one of the most difficult and tumultuous in their life. In the, in theory, brought greater isolation. Well, something happened. Something happened that wasn't supposed to. So, um, so anyway, that's going on in the non. Uh, on Wednesday, we have the first meeting of the second uh, the second group involved with uh, the weekly seminars. So, so exciting week, busy week. So, uh, good morning to you on this uh, on this uh, Monday morning, the twelfth day of April. Yeah, almost halfway through April. That means May's coming up, right? Yeah. So, um, United States Marine Corps Band. Makes this morning official. Good morning to you. Oops, hold on.
Now, this makes it official. It's dedicated to uh, the people out of Pacific Air Force who are helping me get to uh, Hawaii in a couple weeks. So Elaine and a bunch of people are working that, and uh, I'm excited to go out and uh, and talk to uh, uh, commanders from all over the Pacific who will gather for the commander's course uh, that Pacific Air Force runs. And uh, so uh, looking uh, very much looking forward to that. Um, so... Uh, so this is uh this is dedicated uh this is dedicated to them. Thank you for all the help. betraying your whole life if you don't say what you think and you don't say it honestly and bluntly what keeps you awake at night nothing i keep other people awake at night for this campus had prepared him well <clears throat> i'm very confident that thank you very much <clears throat> if this was vodka it'd be a lot better speech <clears throat> Mm-hmm. <clears throat> 
but I'm not supposed to glamorize alcohol anymore. So young folks, you ignore what I just said. We just have to execute. And we are executing every day. And Sergeant Major and I are very proud of what you do. Doesn't mean we can't get better. We don't, we don't want to make a mistake to learn. We don't want to lose to learn. We cannot lose if we have to go fight. We got to do what these Marines did here 75 years ago. Persevere against difficult, challenging conditions and odds and win. You got to win. Time for us to check the weather here on uh, on this Monday as we get halfway through the month of April. And much of the nation begins to uh, open back up. Yeah, how about that? Crazy. Uh, partly cloudy and 64 already in Quantico. So warming up on the east coast, down the coast of Camp Lejeune. Sunny and 74. Marine Corps Base 29 Palms out in the California desert. Sunny and 68 already. Camp Pendleton, clouds in 59. Camp Smith in Hawaii, dark cloudy in 61. Okinawa, dark cloudy, 72. Darwin, where it's always warm. Dark cloudy in 81. And in Norway, it is cloudy, raining, and 40 degrees at the home of All Marine Radio. Cloudy in 59. Looking for a high today of 66. We get 63 tomorrow. What? 62 on Wednesday, 64 on Thursday, 67 on Friday. So the cooling trend here uh, on the West Coast. Can't say I'm a fan of that because I'm not. So Will Costantini going to join me right now as I navigate the wonders of my cell phone here? And there he is, the man, the myth, the legend himself, uh, attired in black, a little bit like Johnny Cash, uh, Will Costantini. Will, how are you this morning? Good. Good Monday. Retired people like Monday. Retired people like Monday. Now, I'm not hearing you so good, so let me make sure that it's you. And not me. That's where it needs to be. That's where it needs to be. Maybe it is. Say something. Something. Oh. <laughs> okay, Will, now say something. Something again. Nice. Okay. I have this ghetto ass like um way of 
transcribing my presentation into text. And what I do is I rig a microphone that was on this channel, hence the slight technical problem this morning. Um, hey, Mac. Yes? Do you think any of your 17 listeners are interested in your silly excuse? Do you, um, just can't keep the button set Will up? you publicly acknowledge for the first time that Auburn Radio ranks 243rd among 500,000, according to Tim Lynch, news analysis programs on Google's podcast list? Would you publicly acknowledge that? I could only. And would you apologize? And would you apologize? Three out of two forty-seven. We're deriding, right? Deriding that ranking publicly. Would you do that? That's a man of integrity. I am a man of integrity, but just because you're two hundred forty-third doesn't mean there are more than. Whenever you hear a guy say, "I am a man of integrity," but you know nothing productive, (laughs) you know nothing. That's right up there with, with all due respect, sir. Okay, look, I don't know what you're about to say, but don't say it, okay? Because that caveat does not carve you a space to be disrespectful. I don't know what other people have thought, but anyway. <clears throat> um, so how was your weekend? Can you give us a poker update? Did you Was it lucrative? Did you fleece a lot well, of people? Yeah, big poker update. Big game on Thursday. And, um, and I lost a pot that had $4,200 in it. And I ended up winning ten dollars on the day. Uh, so, big game. So what? Are big that? swings. Big swings. Yeah. How did you? Yeah. How did you do emotionally when you lost that pot? Did you throw the well, cards? Was, are you okay like that? No, I, I was. Uh, you know, it's one of the things I. I was talking to a guy who normally plays it that wasn't there that day, and I said, you know, um, I, on this particular instance. Uh, I got all the money in there, and I'm an 80-20 favorite, and uh, the 20% came up, <clears throat> so I lost. And uh, the way the game was playing, um, I, I knew I could get back if I didn't go crazy. So I sort of took a breath and uh, rebought and came back in, and it was one of the things at the end of the night that, yeah, I won 10 bucks. Um but I felt pretty good about it, that I didn't just spiral off. Um, so what do you attribute that was Thursday? What do you attribute that behavior, like your combat experiences, experience. your yeah. combat experiences, yeah, experience that, in the game, your combat experiences hardened you to be able to play poker? No, I mean all your life experience helps you out, but in those particular cases, it's basically just experience in the game. Couldn't have done it any differently. It just the odds didn't work out that time. Again, I was an 80-20 favorite. If you if you can bet $1,900 and be an 80-20 favorite, you take the bet every time, right? Well, I'm not a betting man. I'm not a betting man because I tend to be victimized by that 20%. I have a healthy respect for the that 20%. As do I, but that's the game. But, you know, you play for the long term, and that 80% comes up a lot more often. I mean, that's sort of how math works. But you have to admit that. Math and probability. But, I mean, you're kind of insulated being independently wealthy, right? Um, you're you're insulated from a lot of the emotional swings of these kind of games, yes? No, nah, I mean, you still get the emotional swing. 
but um, yeah, you know, I don't play above my means. That's that's, and the guys that are playing in this game are also. It's one of the reasons I like it. No one's in there with their rent money, so Got it. Um, more pleasant environment. Got it. So that was Thursday, Friday. I got my second COVID shot. So and Saturday, just, just for the down. record, just for the record, Will has already had COVID. 2020, a banner year in Will's life for a lot of different reasons. We won't go into some of them, but uh, but uh, did we talk about Yeah, I lost my job. I had cancer and I got COVID. Okay. So. I wasn't sure we talked about all of that. <laughs> so I got like I got like midstream on that and then was hemming and hawing thinking, what am I doing here? <laughs> yeah, so I got my second shot in um uh Saturday was a little rough. You know, I had that degree, degree and a half of fever, body ache. Um Sunday morning woke up, you know, and I, I didn't even get out of bed till noon on Saturday. Whoa. And Sunday got up and felt, you know, like the day after you've been sick, sort of weak. Um, by yesterday afternoon, I was pretty good. Interesting. Um, so I got my shot through the VA up right. here. Right. And the VA is just knocking it out of the park. Yeah. You know, um, I went to Long Beach and they were fantastic. I mean, they called me on a Sunday and I, I'm getting a, so I get a phone call from the VA on a Sunday. I'm like, what the hell? Sunday afternoon at like 4.30. So I answer the phone like this. Hello? And they're like, hi, Mr. McNamama? I say, uh, yeah, that, that's me. Um, this is Polly with the VA. We're scheduling like we're scheduling uh, COVID shots. And uh, your name's on our list. And we thought we'd reach. I said, why are you calling me on Sunday? Like my assumption was somehow or other. Like some of my stool got trapped in a uh, analytics trap in the LA sewer system. It got sent to you. You analyzed it, traced it to me. I'm gonna die tomorrow, so you're calling me tonight. She says, "What?" <laughs> and I, I said, "Yeah, Sunday." She said, "Well, people are home, so it's easier." I'm like, "Oh, okay." But let me tell you. I mean, I showed up. They asked me 20 questions at the doorway. I told the truth on every one of them. Walked in, got screened a second time, walked in, had a wonderful conversation with the nurse and uh, and sat there while she got my shot ready. She gave me my shot. It was all it was it was great. They gave me my card, say you come back in the, in 30 days. So I went on uh, February 18th and then March 18th, went back a month later. Same thing. Right. And. uh Got my second shot. I didn't have any reactions, but supposedly, you know, you're, you're told that the reaction to the second shot will be worse, and you're told that if you've had COVID, the reaction to the second shot will be even worse than the aforementioned worse. So I, I agree with you. I mean, the VA was easy and awesome, which which are which are two adjectives not very often associated with VA. No, and when I was there on Friday. Um, man and a woman walked up, probably mid late sixties. Says, "You know, I've got an appointment, thirteen hundred. So they sit down, and someone comes over. Sir, are you so and so? Yeah, here's your appointment. And they ask the lady, and ask her, "Well, when are you going to get your? When's your appointment?" She says, oh, "I haven't had my first shot yet." And they said, "Well, is this your wife?" Uh, "Yeah, it is." 
Uh, do you want to get a shot? Sure. They knocked it out right there for um, And, you know, I, I was thinking about this. A year ago, you know, we were in the midst of nobody knows what the hell's going on. And I don't know when the president said he was going to have a vaccine, and then he said he's going to have it by the end of the year. And then he said everyone's going to have it by springtime. And everyone said he's full of shit. <laughs> and here we are. I think that they've delivered 100. And, I think they've they've injected 160 million vaccines now. Um, so, and I was skeptical that that they would get a vaccine by the end of the year, but they did. And and now, at least in Kansas, they can't find enough people to put it into. Uh, if the VA is doing walk-ups on veterans' spouses, who no way, shape, or form. I wouldn't think um, should be getting it from the VA, but they were doing it because they got it. So, yeah, that's what I did this weekend. Now. Well, you know, I, I think what happens is they bust out a certain amount of you know shots, and then uh, and then people don't show up for appointments and things like that, and so they have extra, and they're winding up throwing it away. And so yeah. I I think that because my cousin's wife got vaccinated like that. Um, he was part of a program through work and they could cover him, but not her. And then, so he called and he said, is there any way he said, I'll pay. And they said, well, at the end, if you bring her and you come at the end of the day, we have almost every day we have leftover shots and, you know, we give them to anybody who shows up. So, so he got, he, she got vaccinated as well. So, uh, so anyway, all right. And uh, anything else of significance to report? No, that's that's that was an exciting weekend for me. I had actually had an event, you know. Really? So really? Wow. Yeah. Oh, 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 oh. The um. All right, let's talk about uh, some interesting stuff in the news, eh? Um. Now, for those of you who don't know, among Will's other credentials in his life, um, he is a uh, he is a distinguished graduate. Were you a distinguished graduate at Monterey? We're just in a... uh, no, I think everyone is. Every... <laughs> so, will well, graduate school works that way? You know, what... if you don't have a, a high GPA, you don't. There, there's no such thing as getting a C in graduate school. There's not. So... No, no wonder I've never attended. The um, <laughs> if you can't get a C, that's not for me. Um, unless I'm actually interested in the subject matter. So, uh, so Will attended Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey and became what's known as a feo. Now, feo is a Spanish word for ugly. That's not what we're talking about. All right. The uh, Will is a subject area expert. I think that's what he's called in uh, Egypt. What is your actual Middle East? Middle East. Okay. So it's kind of interesting. Um, so. Anyway, that by way of introduction, what do you make of this uh, this explosive accident in uh, in Iran? Well, you know the the Israelis. A lot of people say never again, right? Uh, but the Israelis they learned it the hard way. They generated, you know, the Jewish population generated that idea never again, uh, and they've lived it um, through the history of the country and. 
can you just as a way of can you just as a way of a historical footnote explain never again and where that comes from yeah i mean i i think that uh adolf hitler basically said he was going to exterminate the jews and and nobody believed him and then he almost did it and so they said never again and so when they face existential threats particularly overt threats like the iranians have made they're not in a place to say, well, maybe they won't do it. They take it seriously. And so they've been on this idea that the mullahs cannot get a nuke. Uh, and they've probably likely have stiffened the spine of some American administrations uh, behind the scenes. But they also have been more than willing to act unilaterally to prevent it. Um, you know, they destroyed an Iraqi Iraq or what in like the 80s. Um, they've gone after Syrian, uh, what they believe were chemical uh, and potentially nuclear deposits unilaterally. Uh, and I believe, is this the second or the third time? Uh, the, second I, the second I know of. Yeah, and I, I, so this is maybe the second attack on a facility, but then uh, they were involved, likely involved, and may, they may have actually admitted it, uh, in the assassination of a big uh, nuclear scientist right. Right. sometime in the last year, I'm pretty sure. Well, no, you're right. That would, uh, make, that would make three, right? There, there, was an, there was a previous explosion at this facility. Um, there's this event, and then there was the... Um, the really kind of cryptic reporting about robots or, you know, drones or yeah. something, right? I mean, I, I've never, um, the story is, is, is an odd story. Uh, and, and so, um, no, so you would be right. That's, that's three right there. Yeah. And then, you know, the other thing about this, so Israel and, and, uh, the Israeli electorate, is a lot like the American electorate, very divided, 50-50, uh, 51-49, 49-51, um, where often the fringe can control the center. And so they've had a couple of inconclusive uh, elections, and I think they had one very recently. Uh, and... So the news, the, the act itself, I don't think would be a, a, a domestic political act. I believe an administration probably from either side of their spectrum would have done this had they had the capability and they saw the threat. But the idea that it so quickly leaked out from supposedly Israeli and U.S. intelligence sources that they were involved, that may be a little domestic political play. Um, so Netanyahu is going up against, I think, uh, Benny Gantz, who was a senior IDF general. He may have been the uh, chief of staff of the IDF at one point. Um, and so is he is, is you know, the, could this have leaked out through the Netanyahu administration because he's trying to bolster uh, his credentials, uh, that he is always going to fight for Israel against Iran. You know, I don't know. I haven't seen any 
any sort of analysis uh, in that way. I haven't talked. I know one guy very well who would have a pretty keen insight in that. I haven't talked to him, uh, but that just sort of came to mind as why it would have come out uh, so quickly. Let me just read a few lines of uh, of what been uh, so some so far brought to light on Sunday. Iranian news outlets reported a large scale fire at the underground uranium enrichment facility at Natanz following the electrical blackout. The cause of the fire was unknown. An anonymous official who spoke to the New York Times described a, cl- a classified operation and said. They believe it had struck a blow to Iran's uranium enrichment capabilities. Moreover, the official, the officials, note plural, said it might take as long as nine months to relaunch the enrichment program at Natanz. Intelligence officials in Israel and in the United States said Israel has played a role in the incident. Now, what's interesting about that, I think, is this. Um, and so there was some sort of attack on centrifuges you know, with, which is very, very significant, right? Um, when they say they played a role, there's been explosions and this assassination in Israel. Many people believe that that they um, that there is a active insurgency or whatnot that is facilitating or partnering with uh, with external actors to facilitate these events. So, I mean, to me, when you, you begin to, to read, I don't know, not re- between the lines or whatever, but when you begin to analyze this and the things that are said, it's very interesting uh, what's going on in Iran. So that's kind of the background of what we're talking about here. Yeah, and, and Iran... You know, it's a bit of a mess, to say the least. Uh, the mullahs in charge, a lot of them have been proven to be very corrupt. Um, the, 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 the embargo on oil really hurt their economy. Um, and I, I think in general, the poorer uh, sectors of Iran were likely to be the more fervently religious, and so they're supporting the mullahs. But then economically, they're they're really hurt because the oil revenue goes down. Um, if there's you know a secularizing or a, or a moderate portion of the society, you would think it would be within sort of the merchant uh, class. Uh, they suffer from the embargo, so there's a lot of social upheaval there. Um, you know, while the Shah was in Iran, um, uh, the U.S. was able to sort of broker some Iranian-Israeli cooperation, which seems strange now, but back then the Shah was was attempting to secularize. Um, and there used to be a significant Jewish population in Iran. I have no idea what remains of that uh, today. Um, so the Iranians, I think the, the regime is, is like a veneer. And um, 
the idea that there's significant opposition now, how much power do they have? How organized are they? You know, is, uh, is Mossad, the Israeli intelligence, are they attempting to bolster those groups? You would think they would. Um, what kind of connections do they have? Yeah, I, I don't know. That's, that's pretty deep stuff. Um, and if it crossed over in the U.S., that'd be pretty highly compartmented uh, in top secret type stuff. So don't know. It, it sort of makes sense if you, if you think about it. Um, but you could get into a spy novel pretty quickly <laughs> by trying to theorize, you know, all the way down to the Nat's ass on that. So, um, yeah. Let me read you one more thing and, and get your thoughts on this. Uh um, another news article uh, interviews a guy named Eric Barbing, former head of the Shin Bet Security Agency's cyber department. Um, quote, any facility the size of a nuclear reactor is a very complex one that includes a lot of parts and requires a lot of support. There are large systems that ultimately, whether you want it or not, depend on external suppliers. Whether it's a high-tension electrical system, suppliers of air conditioners, or any other infrastructure, even control gates, Barbing said. A nuclear reactor is such a big building and system that it will never be a state within a state, and it will always have weak points. When he says weak points, he's talking in the cyber aspect, right? Weak points are access points. Now what is happening is that some administrative supplier is being attacked and chaos ensues. It also sends the other side a message that says, we're here, we're with you. We know perfectly well what you're doing behind closed doors. It has a huge psychological effect. And then he says, similar actions could be carried out against Israel. Let's just say the Kira... I think that's in parentheses, military headquarters in Tel Aviv, has a 14-story building, and all of a sudden, I shut down air conditioners on the fourth and the fifth floor. I'm not saying that anything like this has happened, but that it could, and the message to Israel will be clear. Similarly, I can get to the nuclear reactor at Nahal Sarek and bring down high-tension wire that leads to it. The message to Israel will get through loud and clear. When he asked what strategy underlies acts like these, Barbing said, these are soft blows, like what happened with the ships. The Iranians haven't sunk any Israeli ship, and Israel hasn't sunk any Iranian ship. Both sides are fighting at a low level of power, understanding the other side and preserving a balance that won't dictate a response. Therefore, I assume that there was no real damage to the Natanz reactor. But the coincidence of the Iranian announcement about increasing its nuclear capabilities and this malfunction indicate some entity was sending a quiet message warning them, the Iranians, not to cross a certain line. It's a strong message that essentially says, right now, I just shut off the electricity, but I can do a lot more. It's a message that creates pressure and is well understood. The Iranians obviously know that they are vulnerable. So interesting, right? This uh I don't know, this subtle act of uh this subtle act of power shutting down. But uh but again, if that's what happened, I mean, you attack my nuclear reactor system, 
um, my uranium enrichment system, is that not an act of war? If you shot a, yeah. if you, if you shot a missile at it, it sure as hell is. Yeah. And, and while I, I mean, I understand the guy's argument. Um, I'm not, I'm not sure, you know, he says, oh, the message is sent. It's very well understood. Um, you know, that's all well and good about a lot of things. But when you're talking about nuclear weapons, I'm not sure I want to go there. Really? You know, if I'm going to send a message, I want it to be very clearly understood. And this idea of all these soft messages, they know exactly what we're talking about and they know what they're not supposed to do. Yeah, I don't know. Because um, once they get a nuke, um, they can tell you to take a message and shove it up your ass, right? Um, in Farsi. Yeah. Or in Hebrew. Uh, they actually don't care. <laughs> they would make sure it got translated. No, you're right about that. Interesting. But again, as, as you said, you know, the whole, right, the whole never again, right, the whole never again thing. Um, yeah, and, and, and again, you know, Israeli politics is, is very divided, right. very divided. And it's been that way for years and years and years. And they'll argue, you know, there's Israelis that basically say we should give up Tel Aviv because true Israel is the West Bank. There's other Israelis that say we should give up Jerusalem because true Israel is Tel Aviv. And there's everything in between. And there's people that are hyper-religious and there's people that are completely atheist and there's, you name it, it's all over there. My sense, though, is that never there's very few that are completely um, pacifist. And that never again is a common thread right. throughout right. their body politics. Yeah, even um, even those that, so, that we would we would categorize as liberals would say, "Oh no, I believe in never again." Trust me. Yeah, yeah. I I, yeah, I think that that's it's got too an deep. Overwhelming it's, majority. Yeah, too deep in my family. Right, I could show you the portraits of people in my family that have died in our wars, and so. Um, Second topic, GAO sees U.S. military readiness slipping, uh, written by a guy named Mike Glenn in the Washington Times, focusing on a GAO report. Uh, what do you make of that? I mean, all, all the talk of all the things that we read is, you know, uh, one of our criticisms consistently on Thursday is um, we never see, you know, operational excellence, operational, you know, readiness at at the start of anybody's comments and sometimes it doesn't even make it into statements um um let me and i'll read one part of the report quoting the report every war fighting domain is now contested as potential adversaries most notably china and russia have developed and enhanced their own capabilities the gao found that reported domain readiness will not meet readiness recovery goals identified by the military services. Anything anything significant here um, that you saw in the report? Well, so I read the headline. Right. GEO report sees U.S. military readiness slipping. And then you read the first paragraph. It says, a just-released report from the GAO says America's military services are not falling short of their readiness goals. Yeah. 
So I, I assume that the word not is a typo. Be there. Right. Because then the rest of it says they are falling short of the readiness goals. But I don't I couldn't find a link to the report. And it's probably like a thousand pages long anyhow. Right. Um so then uh the the thing that got me is uh go down to the bottom. And so you know, Republican Senator James Inhofe, ranking Republican on the SASC, says he's pushing for a three to five percent increase in real growth for the Pentagon budget each year for the foreseeable future. And that, you know, I, I don't, I don't know how much I buy into this anymore. You know, Pentagon Pentagon budget's got a lot of things in it. You got to pay the salary. You got to pay for procurement. When I think procurement, I think new stuff. You got to pay for ongoing operations and training. You got to pay for maintenance, i.e. old stuff. Um, and then there's just a lot of crap in there as well. I mean, you know, we spent half a billion dollars to keep National Guard troops in Washington, D.C. for the last four months. Um, and so a 3 to 5% increase, I, I would rather that be much more narrowly defined. And for the most part, you know, senators and congressmen, what part of the budget do they like? They like procurement. That's money that gets spent in districts. And senators and congressmen that have got significant uh, depot-type facilities in their districts they like maintenance because it gets spent there. And there's a few honest senators and congressmen, I'm sure. Um, but it's really, uh, it's really where does that money get spent? You know, um, when I was in Monterey, there's a guy named Sam Farr, who was a local congressman. Typical Northern California. You know, he's out there on the political spectrum. But he had the two absolute greatest bases you could ever have in your district. The Naval Postgraduate School and the Defense Language Institute. So they didn't occupy a big footprint. They brought all the smart people in the military. So you didn't have any of the, uh, the downside of a large military installation. They made no noise. There was no pollution. They actually added to the uh, business environment in town, particularly the Naval Postgraduate School, because there's a lot of technical things that went on there. Um, and it was a way... You couldn't believe the new gyms and the new parking lots and all that infrastructure bullshit that got put in there. Uh, and I'm not sure Sam Farr ever voted for a defense budget, but I guarantee goddamn <laughs> he was in there swinging a baseball bat to make sure that those two facilities never got moved and always got funded. With another 10 million for this and 14 million for that, that some contractor in his district was going to suck up. Um, you know, that's that's the way the military works. 
Well, that's the way the bu- that's the way the budget works, right? And and again, yeah, that's I, the way the budget works, right? And when you uh, e- even the article points out, the national defense portion of Mr. Biden's top line budget is expected to be largely flat, and spark a fierce battle between Capitol Hill Republicans and pro defense Democrats with Mr. Biden's left wing supporters. Um, and and I agree with you. I mean, you look at we outspend. I mean, I think China's at. 200 billion now and we're we're at what 700 billion right. 700 that's 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 online i don't know if they still have the offline budget as well yeah you know the uh, i can't even remember what they call it um but that the the oco overseas contingency operations that were not online in the budget but somehow contributed to the debt right. yeah right Right, right, right. So, I mean, and again, I, as you said, there's a lot of things in that budget, you know, and I don't know how you, how do you scream and scream and scream? And again, one of the things, one of the structural things in the United States Navy that's quite disturbing is our extremely limited ability to do maintenance, right, at shipyards. That is decreasing and decreasing and decreasing and is a major obstacle to in fact when you when again in the discussion of the Bonhomme Richard one of the one of the reasons that you know it is it will now become razor blades it will now get scrapped is they they we don't have the dry dock capability to put something like that someplace for an extended period of time without crippling other initiatives we just don't have that surge capacity in shipbuilding and ship maintenance. And that's a big structural issue for the United States Navy. So when 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 you have those kind of flaws and that's not being addressed financially, what are you doing? Right? Where are you spending yeah, your, where, you where, where are you spending your money for God's sakes? If if you're not doing basic structural functional things that allow you to that that are the trigger for other very very important things that, that you're doing. So I don't I get concerned about. Yeah, you know you 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 think of how the Navy was you know you know a long time ago, right. say in the '60s. So not super high tech ships, you know they were they were state of the art, but they weren't super high tech. They were. Um, sort of chemical and kinetic type stuff for the most part. And there was a lot of them. And so you could keep a base, a maintenance facility sort of operating in an economical way because you could always feed the line with it. But then you, you take that fleet base down to less than 300 ships um and so your your support base shrinks, and now can you feed the support base to keep it going? You know, it, it's sort of like uh, uh, the, the Marine Corps, some of our depot facilities, like down Albany. Um, you had to have a certain number of tanks in that facility being maintained just to keep that facility going. And... Uh, when you're dealing with low numbers, it becomes very uneconomical 
to do that kind of a thing. And then all of a sudden the facility goes away. And then when you, when you have to surge, there is no surge. There's no access anywhere. Um, And, you know, shipbuilding is another story. We got Pascagoula and we got Bath. And I think there's one in Norfolk, but if you can't heel to toe those ships so that one is sliding off and the next one starts building, you lose the workforce. And then there's no learning curve. Um, and believe it or not, even building a ship, there's a learning curve that as people do it, they get better at it. You get efficiencies. And if you can't heal the toe those things so that, that that workforce stays there, they actually disappear. And they go do other things. And then you've got to find another workforce and bring them in. And that's one of the reasons ships cost so damn much and they never come in on budget um, is the shipyards. Uh, you know, it's not like a, a real production facility that's up and humming and knocking out a thousand units a day. And then, right. No, these guys, you know, it's interesting during the whole sequestration process and the problems that that caused on the budget. And when you you looked at the ability of the Navy, who was who was doing, I don't know, I'll use the term SLEP in terms of service life extension program um, on the F-18, on the various F-18 models, right? And so the people that are doing this, when the budget was not getting approved, and then they had to go through the sequestration process. You know, these programs stopped. Well, these people are, uh, they're not like assembly line guys, right? They're they are very highly skilled, highly technical artists, if you will. And they said, we're out of here. We're going someplace else. Well, now you get the money. They're not coming back. And that's what, you know, what to, to kind of double down on what Will's saying. They're not coming back, and you can't just restart the pipeline, right? And so why can't we get this thing done? Well, there's reasons, and this stuff is – and, again, that supply is so finite because we've reduced the tube to be what it is that you get a disruption in that. It's like the Suez Canal. All kinds of sh- bad shit gets going. The – um. Yeah, I don't think raising, again, the budget. You look at what we spend and what's in that budget, uh, to me, you know, the Pentagon got to take a hard look at itself. you got to rack and stack its priorities. And let me tell you, um, you know, you see some of the studies about the civilian bloat that's in the Pentagon. And I don't know, $700 billion, are we getting getting $700 billion worth of defense and and that's just on the public side. I, I I don't think so. I don't. Yeah, I. And as you've said on here, I can't believe that readiness is going to increase until I hear at least someone up there say it's their priority. And there has been no one in this administration, and none of the Joint Chiefs have broken squelch on this that I can tell. I don't pay that much attention. That's saying readiness is the number one priority. Um, haven't heard it. Yeah, what's the priority? It's disturbing. It's uh, extremism is, and all the different social issues are are the priority. Yeah, and uh, and again, yeah. you, what you're gonna, what's going to happen 
as 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 in my opinion, you're looking at a declining, you know, organization in the DoD. Is that uh, when when we have to move back to the uh, Alaska, Hawaii, Guam, Second Island chain, we will do that with the most diverse, and inclusive military we've ever had. It's just not very good, right? And we'll pay a price for it at some point. Okay. And so I'm not saying that you can't be diverse and reflective, but let me tell you, number one has to be operational excellence, and everything falls underneath that. And, again, all you got to do is look at the Army's struggle with their physical fitness test, right? It's got to be, you know, it's got to work for everybody. Well, what happens if it can't work for everybody? You know, and, again, I, I, I sound like such a fucking chauvinist when I say this, but, you know, and I'll quote Will, you know, Joe Biden you know, was, you know, there's nothing that a man can do that a woman can't do better. Well, I, I don't think that's factually true. You know, that's yeah, why, that's why, that's why we have playing in the NBA. Yeah. That's why we have a WNBA. That's why we have, you know, women's sports, because if we only had one team at a university, the opportunities for women would be, you know, only the unicorn would, would be on the team, let alone play. Yeah. Look, and so, yeah, I mean, yeah, we, yeah. we, but we won't even will. I mean, it's not to the point. We won't even entertain that in public. Nobody will even like, Mr. Biden. You know, there's no women playing the NFL. Are you insinuating that nobody will even say that in public? The obvious. And so, and so, and so, we're asked to entertain that in the military. And then, what happens in the military? Because we want to make our fantasy reality is we continue to lower standards. And so. Again, I um, this is a hard discussion, right? And so inclusion, yeah, absolutely. Within these within these standards, include everybody that can do it. And again, just like the whole transgender issue, I don't give a shit what you want to be. Okay, really, I don't. I, I don't care. But we put people who blow out their knees and are going to be on limited duty, or you know, we we med board them and get them out. We don't allow that. So if you have to go through a process that's going to take you years and years to accomplish, you get to stay? And so I don't care what you want to be. But that kind of medical, you know, that kind of medical care is not what the DOD's job is. And so if that's what you want to do, that's fine. We'll medically discharge you and have at it. But don't ask the American taxpayer to keep anybody on light duty, limited duty status for multiple years unless you've had your shit blown up in combat and we believe we owe you that. That is the one caveat I would carve you know, out for everybody. So it isn't a, you hate transgenders, I don't give a shit what you want to be, okay? But this is a war-fighting organization. And, but we can't even have that conversation because you'll get canceled if you even introduce those concepts. And let me tell you this. You know, when, when, you know, General Mattis, right, if he was getting leaned on to do something that he didn't think was right, I would tell you this, he wouldn't, he wouldn't have done it as a secta. What he carved out, the policy that he carved out, I believe was the appropriate policy relative to people with gender dysphoria. Okay. And, and, and so, as much as people wanted to take a, I don't know, a political stand on that issue, 
he took, I, I think, a pragmatic military DOD Secretary of Defense stance in that we can't have you be in that medical status for that long a period of time. Okay, It's just not in our interest as a DOD. And we do that with all kinds of other people, diabetics, people that are colorblind. Not everybody can serve. And so, but again, when, when, you, ha- when you can't have this conversation, you know, it's, I don't know. It's pretty disturbing. It's pretty disturbing. And you don't hear general officers, you know, raising these issues in public for obvious reasons. They want to keep their jobs. So I don't know. It seems like that's how we get to to these places. Disturbing, to say the least. Concur. What? I said well, concur. That's never right, happened. That's never, <laughs> that's never happened. The, um, uh, give me your thoughts on, uh, as a Middle East expert, give me your thoughts on uh, Putin is uh, testing Biden in the Ukraine. Um, the Chinese are testing Biden in the South China Sea, so he's getting his chest poked. Um, first of all, you know, can you explain, Will, what's going on and give us your thoughts on that? Yeah, so 2014 or 15, uh, Russia annexed Crimea, you know, part of Ukraine. So, so you can go back further. Obviously, you know, Ukraine was part of the Soviet Union, broke up. Uh, Russia wanted to maintain their influence there. Then there was a quasi-democratic uh uh, you know, rising against that, Ukraine really asserted that we're going to be independent. There's obviously some large Russian-speaking enclaves in Ukraine. Um, I want to say 14 or 15 or 16. It, it was a while ago. It was before Trump, so it was maybe 15. They annexed Crimea. And then in the last couple of years, they've been in support of these Russian-speaking enclaves, which are on the sort of Russian border, supporting these insurgents. And there's been a there's been an ongoing shooting war in Ukraine, which is how that and, which is how that uh, airliner got shot down, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and so there's been a campaign, and this I didn't I didn't pay that much attention to it. There's been a campaign, I believe, within Ukraine to become part of NATO. And, uh, yes, it's, it's been, it it has not been fast tracked, um, which I think would be interesting. And so, you know, Putin, I think in the last month, Russia has said, you know, oh yeah, we're just doing a big training exercise Well, this big training exercise has, has turned out to be a massing of, of Russian troops from as far away as Siberia, uh, which is a long ways away. Uh, onto the Ukrainian border. And so the Ukrainian uh, premier or president, whatever he is, is, has been out there saying, you know, they're coming after us and we need to be part of NATO, which I think is entertaining, you know. I mean, (laughs) NATO has proved itself to be a paper type, right? Uh, And what, what head of state in Europe um, old Europe, you know, France, Germany, Spain, Portugal, uh, would ever want to bring Ukraine into NATO 
with the idea that an attack on one is an attack on all. And what true, (laughs) true critical international thinker wants to rely on NATO for his defense? I mean, anyone can look at what NATO ponied up in Afghanistan, um, which was, and I don't really care what anyone says, which was basically nothing but a headache. Um, you know, the Germans will come and they'll do this, but only between these hours with a coffee break in between, not more than these people, and the French will do this, and I think the Brits did a lot more than that. But right. for the most part, they didn't do shit right. except complain. Um, yeah, only the Brits were willing to die. Yeah. Go, go places uh, where they might get killed. You know, nobody yeah. else, everybody else had to be protected, right? They had to get their combat pay, and I think we footed the bill on most of that. But they were they were they were essentially wallpaper for the uh, for the event, so that we could say we, a yeah. coalition of the willing is up to now seventy eight countries, you know. And as yeah. Will said, they're hanging out in places like Kandahar and Kabul, and they're not really contributing to what's going on. Yeah. So the idea that that you know does. Who in the current administration of the big people, president, vice president, sec dev, secretary of state, uh, speaker of the house, uh, majority leader of the Senate, who amongst those people has gone out and said America is the greatest country in the world? America has <laughs> always been the greatest country in the world. We have a mission to bolster democracies and freedom-seeking people around the world. We are willing to pay any price, bear any burden. No one. Who amongst those six has said America is a terrible country? Well, all of them have. We're found on racism. Uh, We've got systemic problems, yada, yada, yada. So why would anyone think that a foreign adversary would hesitate to challenge what they think the U.S. interests might be. Um, you know, weakness breeds attacks. And I can't, I mean, you, you step outside the U.S. and look at us, and there's no way you can see a cohesive, powerful, uh, confident country. You see a chaotic, declining cesspool. Well, you know, what's even interesting in all of that, Will, is that, you know, if you think we're a racist country, I'll give you a plane ticket, right? And I'll give you all the money you need. This is hypothetically, of course, don't email me and say you'll take me up on this, but um, and I'll send you around the world. And when you get done with your journey, come back and tell me what you find. And then, and then I want to hear your assessment of the United States of America, the most diverse, right? <clears throat> Racially, ethnically nation on the planet, the nation with the most opportunities, no matter your gender, no matter your race, the nation with the most opportunities. Okay. The, you know, We've elected a black man to be the president of the United States twice. 
a black woman got elected to be the vice president was not even an issue in anything. So, but that nation is the most one is is a racist nation. So what's happened here is is and it's getting lectured by a nation that has you know Muslims in concentration camps that just annexed Hong Kong, right? A totalitarian communist state is lecturing the United States of America, and the Secretary of State stood there and took it, sat there and took it. And you're looking at that, and you're thinking, wow, they've so lost their way, they don't even know who they are and where they are in the world. Because there is no, they don't have a peer relative to opportunity, you know, and, and racial diversity. They don't. They don't. But they don't know that. How laughable, right? How utterly laughable. And so you can start crawling up their ass over shit, and they'll turn inward. They won't say, well, wait a minute. Before you go there, how about you look in the mirror, jackass? They won't do that in public. They'll get embarrassed because they don't believe in the rightness of their own cause, which is amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, I don't know if you uh, did, did you see the journal on Saturday? They did an interview with, uh, you know, Britain just came out with this big report on race. And they did an interview with one of the guys that was that did the report. No, I did not see that. Go back and read it. Yeah, it's uh, page 813 on the Saturday Wall Street Journal on the print version. And, uh, it's, you know, it's interesting. They, they, they did this big report. And um, as soon as they put it out, it got torn to shreds by everyone because it basically said uh, – while Britain's not a post-racial society, there's a hell of a lot less discrimination than there used to be. And they got into numbers. And they said, you know, if you are of, if you are black of Caribbean descent, you're in a really bad place economically. If you're black of African descent, you're actually above average in Britain. And they say race is not a predictor of everything. It turns out that if you're black of Caribbean descent, you're like 80-something percent chance of being in a single-parent home. As opposed to if you're black of African descent, you're like an 80% chance of being in an intact two-parent household. Um, and, you know, the people who wrote the report got attacked, although 80% of them were not white. Um they got the usual Uncle Tom, right, right, blah, 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 blah. Right. Um, so imagine if Joe Biden went out and gave a speech and said, America is the greatest country in the world. Shit, half the Democrats would attack him. Because his vice president went down to Atlanta last month half? and said, this is a completely racist country. Half? half it'd be more than half. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. All the public Democrats, 90% of those would attack him, but only maybe half of the others. Because there's still a bunch of boneheads who live in the suburbs in the Midwest who believe that Democrats are those blue collar, <laughs> um, you know, underdog uh, for the, people against for the, for the, the rich plutocrats. Yeah, for the working man. Yeah, they haven't. You know, it's like fashion. Fashion takes about five years to get from New York to Kansas City. Right. It seems like. Uh, news takes that long as well, um, oh, funny. at least on this particular uh, topic. So, interesting. 
Yeah. Interesting. All right, I got one more, and then I'll let you go. Um, and this is just um, the rate of U.S. suicides dropped during the pandemic, the largest decline in four years. Um, I also want to say, um, this is this is an article written in Time magazine, right? The U.S. savings rate is soaring. Okay. Um, so we're saving money, right? And um, I want to say that um, we're also paying off. Yeah. Americans paid off a record $83 billion in credit card debt in, 20, in 2020. So this thing, this Armageddon thing, right, which, and again, I would say if you, if you didn't live through the Depression, um, if you're younger than us and you didn't really live through Vietnam, you've grown up in a pretty good America, Right. Um, other people fight fight the wars. You see it on TV, and, and it gets uneasy when somebody in your community gets killed. But other than that, I mean, what has impacted your pursuit of your happiness? Nothing. No draft. There's no nothing. I mean, all you do is you, you go out and you try to make yourself happy. So this challenge of COVID is probably the most substantive challenge that most people have faced in their lifetime as, a, you know, as part of the nation. Um, and so... Gloom and doom forecast, and you have record debt being paid off. You have uh, Americans saving money at, at record pace. And then this article that I saw, the rate of U.S. suicides dropped sharply during the pandemic, the largest decline in four years. So what do you make of all these data points that are that that are the exact opposite of what people thought? Many people thought... Look, the rate of debt is going to go through the roof as people, you know, as people lose ability to, to, to support themselves. Debt's going to explode. Savings will necessarily be drained. But the exact opposite happens. Your thoughts? Uh, yeah. I, I'd like to see the data point on businesses that, are, that have disappeared. Because, you know, you think about it. Um, if there's a restaurant out there that uh, – went out of business, people go on employment. So the business owner loses everything. And the 21 other people that work there actually may make more money. Uh, that's what was going on with unemployment. Right. People were making more than when they were working. Um, I attribute some of the debt reduction to people's costs are down. If you're a, if you're a 40 to $60,000 a year office worker, who's able to work from home, right? Your costs are way down. Yeah. No more daycare. You're not going no, out to lunch. Yeah. No more daycare. No more, no more, no more, no more gas costs. Right. If you commute. Yeah. Yeah. You're not going out to lunch. You're, you're not having to go to the cleaners. If you've got to wear business attire, you don't have to refresh your wardrobe. So a lot of costs uh, are down. I think it's also natural that, um, Future economic uncertainty always has people rein in. Um, so, and there's been huge $83 billion in debt reduction. How much 
how much money has been put out there for stimulus checks, straight up checks, you know, what, 500 billion? So the idea that $83 billion in credit card debt was reduced, not surprising. The uh, the suicide thing, um, yeah, I read the article and you can't really, there's no, there's no real data in the article to parse it out. Right. There's some theory, I'm not sure about some of the theory. Uh, some things make sense to me that people that were that were intermittently left alone and i'd like to see you know where what what are the demographics of suicide for the last 10 years and then what are the demographics in the last year see which groups are most likely affected um like it or not covid may have killed some people that may have committed suicide i don't know um people that are in bad health uh Whatever. I don't. I don't. I doubt that that's overly significant, but it's, there's something there. Um, were were there more kids left unattended, or less kids left unattended? Were were people who were somewhat socially isolated before COVID? Did people do a greater job to reach out to them, even though they couldn't physically visit them? But you know, you heard people about doing family Zoom calls and stuff. Um, so I, I don't know. It is sort of counterintuitive okay. and I would, uh, you know, there's people that said, well, you know, at the beginning people banded together. It was a crusade to defeat. I, I don't know. That's, uh, if people are spitballing those ideas, maybe. Um, but I don't know that, that the data is there to really parse it out and figure it out. Oh, hey, here's one for you. We missed uh, a million to a million and a half cancer um, diagnosis. diagnosis. So there's yeah. a bunch of people that don't know they got cancer that do. How many of those people that found out they had terminal cancer? Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I don't know what, I don't know if we really know what, if we could go through and say these people committed suicide and here's why. And what factors have changed? I don't know. It does. It is absolutely counterintuitive, though, that it would have gone down. I, I would not have guessed that. The um, I'll give you. I, I went to the table for this data. So heart disease deaths went up, cancer deaths, um, I'd say went sideways. Um, let's see. Unintentional injuries went up. Stroke went up. Chronic lower respiratory disease went down. Alzheimer's disease went up. Uh, what is this? Diabetes went up significantly uh, in terms of death. Uh, probably close to a 15% increase. Influenza and pneumonia went up marginally. Kidney disease went up marginally. And suicide went down. So, uh, yeah, the only cause of death to decrease in the nation. And so, um, yeah, and this is from, what is it? Um, the table. Is from the Center for Disease. Um, what's the CDC? Center for is that Center for Disease Control? Yeah, no. I think so. Center for uh, it's a CDC table. 
So, um, and this is leading causes of death, and it shows from two, 2015 to 2020. So, uh, yeah, so the first time since two, in, in the limited data that's shown, um, well, actually, it's the second straight year that suicide has decreased in the United States. It decreased uh, marginally by about 800 suicides, according to the CDC, uh, in 2019. And then it it decreased by 5.6% in 2020. So, well, think of this, too. How many new gun owners are out there? Lots. All those new guns didn't correlate to an increased number of suicides. No, and it correlated to increased happiness. There you go. <laughs> well done. I didn't really think about weaving that little thread through this, but uh, but yeah, no. I mean, the presence of guns in our uh, in our society is a dangerous thing. Um, the uh, yeah, dangerous yeah. criminals. Yeah. The um. So no, I just find it interesting, and again, yeah. I just uh, I, I contrast that with. You know, suicide in the, in the military going up, you know, by uh, by twenty percent, and uh, so it's going down in the culture, but up in the in, in the military, and so to me, there's a there's something wrong there, and uh, but that's for another date and time. Um, what are you doing today? Anything exciting? Uh, not particularly. Um, had to cut my workout short to. Come up here and make sure that our seventeen listeners are entertained. So I'm gonna go big down and finish that up. Nice, nice. Hey, well, first of all, let me publicly thank you for uh, the work you did last week. Um, I continue to get people that uh, reach out and say thank you. Uh, the most detailed discussion I've heard of of uh, of an investigation, and uh, you know, you guys are pretty respectful the way you go about it. And the way you footnote it is pretty impressive. So, uh, and Will did much of the uh, the construction of the timeline through the findings of fact, through the investigation into a uh, the sinking of an AV that killed eight Marines and, and one sailor last July. So, so uh, uh, well done. And on behalf yeah, of a lot, you know, a lot of I, people, I called Jeff about that, and we were talking about it some, and I said that was probably the least fun I've ever had in one of these conversations because normally um there's a outbreak of laughter at some point when we're doing one of the shows i said that was one of the least that was absolutely the least fun show i've done um but i thought it was pretty good um and uh you know i i i I appreciate what Tim says, you know, that, that some of us have a lot of experience in that, but I don't, I don't discount anyone in the active forces own experience. Um, but I, I, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see what, what turns out. The, the, it, you know, Mac, you know, is my, it is our, is our professional life. You know, take away your family. It's the most important thing in your life. And uh, and and I always I always wanted to be part of the alumni association that was sitting out here in the grandstands cheering them on on the field. And I and I 
genuinely don't uh, want to be critical. Um, but the institution matters enough to me um, that hopefully the criticism is is constructive and it's it's meant to improve. Um, but it's tough, you know. It's tough when you got that flag and uh, you got the sticker on your car, and, and it's it's one of your identities. To see some of this, it's really, it's hard. Uh, that was a painful show, but I, I thank you. I appreciate the uh, the sentiment. No, and I, if if you don't hear that pain, when if for those people that listen to it, if you don't hear that pain. Um, um, again, this is uh, an organization that has been uh, one of the great joys in all of our lives. Uh, and the things that, that I think we all loved about that organiz- uh, the organization, the Marine Corps, and our culture is uh, a relentless pursuit of excellence. A uh, unedited, look yourself in the face, get told the truth, relentless pursuit of things excellent. Uh, the people that gravitate to that are have been a lifetime for for all of us of just great relationships. The, and again, you know, we've all said this, but and it's not a question about the Marines. The Marines will be what we what we train them to be, and they're they're as good as they've ever been, arguably better. Okay, but uh, it's uh, it's painful. It, it it's painful to watch this. And and then when you begin to stack investigations next to each other, you see a common thread in it. And it's a trend of leadership that doesn't, I mean, to not read orders, to not do what you were supposed to do, uh, that's not how we did, that's not how we did it. You know, and it's interesting, our, our um, just us as a group, we meet as young captains at the basic school and, and over at the infantry officer course, and we work together. And let me just tell you what, that it was a tough, and, and you hear the way we are. Well, this started when we were captains, and we were relentless about safety, right, about going out and walking the ground and, 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 and taking people and getting opinions and things like that. And if you didn't have your shit together, people would rip your ass. And... And so um, that's always been what we've loved and uh, about the Marine Corps. And uh, so it's painful to watch this. And, and again, you know, and we're getting a little sample what veterans of the Navy, you know, talk about. I mean, if you've been around the Navy for a long time, you've watched it go from this rough and tumble organization they would fight Marines to a standstill in any port around the world where they wanted to fight. And you've, and you've watched it, you know, become an organization that struggles to put out fires of uh, major end items in port. And, I mean, they just shake their head. It's not their Navy. And I, I hope we don't ever have to say that. That's not my Marine Corps um, because I mean, I, you know, I'm, I feel welded to it, but again, the first step in solving a problem is, uh, admitting that you have one. And when people hear this stuff, you know, and, and people that have contacted me that have said, yeah, I wouldn't worry about the Marine Corps. 
I don't even know what to say to that. It's I, I had a regimental commander say to me, not even a year ago, yeah, I think you're overstating the case that, that we have a discipline problem. I don't even know what to say to that. If, you're, if your head is that far up your ass, maybe you should go get the last rites because it ain't good. It ain't good. So, But anyway, thank you for the, the hard work you put in. And, and we'll do one more segment in turn, this Thursday about uh, implications of all of this. Uh, where where does this go? Um, how does it how does it work? I and, and you know, Will, as I've thought about it again, I'm an ops guy. Um, you know, again, I I, I spent most of my time working in combat operations center, and so I can't tell you maybe hundreds, maybe thousand, you know, operations because you're running multiple operations on a daily basis sometimes, and and that's what I did. I mean, you know, you babysit them, you watch them, you know how you do it. As I've thought about it, the fact. And you guys told me this was usual, normal, what, what usual, normal, and customary. But the fact that a track vehicle lieutenant is coordinating on his own a movement to a, a ship and not going through the BLT Combat Operations Center, I, I, I don't understand that. It's it's just like any other operation, any other movement. In my opinion, the BLT. COC has ops guys in there that look for very specific things, you know, working with the ship, yada, yada, yada. Yeah, but, but, Mike, also being at sea, that BLT is, is, you know, an adjunct to the LFOC, and the big deck is over the horizon. And you're sitting there with the, you know, high-power VHF radios that are, that are you know, they're going to get to the horizon at best. So while that thing should be planned, coordinated, and briefed, it's executed at the at the uh, ship and below level. And if you have uh, any visibility on it, it's secondary at best. Um, that's that's part of amphib ops. It's part of distributed ops. You know, there there is no SATCOM point to point communicator like in Star Trek. Um, so that's, that's a limitation of it. Um, but it's a reality. Yeah. I just, uh, I, then to me, that's got to get solved because I, because part of the problem well, how is you solve it is you execute per the orders. The orders very explicitly say what you're supposed to do and who has responsibility. Right. But again, so in the execution of the orders, Right. There's a thing called the six step in troop leading and that is supervision. And what we have is a lieutenant, you know, who who has, you know, his Marines head to a ship and yeah. he assumes their safety boats. The the Navy assumes that they're providing their own like they did when they launched, and there's no discussion of it and we you know, and this thing gets cast in motion. Yeah, to me I'll it's you, to me it's such a I'll glaring flaw. That there's somebody got to mitigate that somehow. Here's something I thought about as well. That you know, I alluded to the uh, the lack of sleep thing. You poo pooed it a little bit. Yes, a lot. Um, here's the other thing that I learned. Where I think, I think that the the modern force is not experienced in this. In, in that, you know, where is the lull? Where is the letdown? And and. Yeah. 
the lull always occurs after the culminating event. And, and I always equated that with the most dangerous event. And this is something that when we got into human factors in combat, you know, John Allen was, was really on this kind of thing. Right. Um, you do an exercise and the culminating event is whatever. Well, for this particular exercise they were doing, it was, it was this raid objective. And then there's a lull. As parts, of, as, lull, as parts of this thing go, quote, unquote, admin. Yeah. And, then, and that lull is described in our doctrine. Speed and concentration. You concentrate and then you disperse. You concentrate and you disperse. And even your human emotional focus concentrates on the most important thing and then disperses. And if I, if I learn one thing from John Allen, and, and I think I learned more than this, it was that as a leader, you become hypervigilant right. immediately after the culminating event. And unfortunately, I've been around, uh, I was a platoon commander when we killed a guy in Norway. I was a company commander. We killed a guy at 29 Palms. Trying to think of other exercise deaths that were within you. Those are the two. There were other exercise deaths and exercises I was around, but they were not within our units. Both of those occurred right after the culminating event. Uh, when, and, I went, when I went out and took over my company, I want to say in 1992, um, I gave my decision-making class, right? And one of the things in the decision-making class is talking about what Will's talking about, right? The sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous systems and how they react and how this euphoric high leads to uh, a uh, situation after that where your body begins to reclaim itself and shut stuff down. And you'll, you know, people will describe this intense drowsiness. Uh, so I, I'm giving this class and we take a break and there's a monument on the ramp of third light armored, um, reconnaissance battalion to eight marines that were killed in an artillery raid during desert storm desert shield and uh they took uh i want to say one nine or eights and they attached them to lavs and they did an artillery raid they used the lavs and the artillery essentially as bait so they went up near the border right they fired and there was a ton of a6s overhead right waiting for counter battery fire um, for things that we hadn't really seen yet, and then they annihilated it. So they did this a few times. On one of the trips back, uh, a driver falls asleep the, after the vehicle commander had fallen asleep, and he loses control, hits another LAV, and eight Marines get killed. And I don't know, three of the Marines come up to me during a break, and they said, hey, sir, could we ask you a question? I said, sure. And he said, they, one of them said, why didn't anybody ever teach us this stuff? Because you're talking about, you know, when this happens, when you know this thing is going on, that means there's got to be some kind of conversation on the vehicle on the way back to make sure everybody's awake. I said, yeah. And they said, we had guys, some of our friends got killed because of that. And I said, look, I'm, I'm sorry. I wish I could tell you. I just started teaching this a few years ago. I don't think we're quite to where we need to be, obviously, because these things keep happening. But but they are certainly preventable. They're certainly preventable. And no, you're right. Well, that period, 
right? Exceedingly dangerous. And I'd be curious to, yeah. to see what, in, in, if you categorized exercise casualties by phases of what you're doing, what come in that, you know, after the culminating event, kind of admin regress phase, what percentage of our casualties actually occur in there? Yeah, when, when in, in 2.6, John Allen pro- prohibited the word index. Could not be used. Yeah, no. Smart. There is no end of exercise. There's another phase. And uh, so I'm just putting myself in, in the environment on that day, July 30th or whatever it was. You know, the company is all geared up. It's the first thing they've done. They haven't been able to do a lot. They go out. They, you know, struggle getting tracks to the ship. Then they struggle getting them ashore. Then they actually get up and they do this thing. And like it or not, I sensed there was a lull there. And 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 a more potentially more experienced commander with a more savvy battalion commander who had drilled these kinds of things may have all of a sudden sniffs danger. Okay. I don't know. But it was one of the things I thought about this week. So, anyways. Interesting. All right, well, I appreciate the uh, the help this morning. Thank you very much. All right. See you, right. Matt. Yeah. That is uh, Will Cosentini here on, on a Monday. And, uh, no, I, I'm, Will's great at that. Um, not only his expertise, but, uh, you know, his world experiences and things like that. So, um, always uh, enjoy doing it. That'll do it on a uh, on a Monday. Thanks for listening. Grant Newsham going to join us tomorrow, and we're going to talk about uh, what's going on in the South China Sea. We've watched this dance, essentially. Um, China poking Joe Biden's chest through the Philippines. And when they begin to send dredgers in there and they begin to start moving dirt, then the die is cast. You haven't seen anybody make a statement about it from the American administration yet, Secretary of Defense, Secretary of State, you know. So we'll, uh, we'll talk to Grant about that. Again, my thanks to Will for coming on this morning. If you're if you're just tuning in, there's a, a whole bunch of stuff in the news that's very interesting, and and we kind of talk about we kind of talk about a bunch. But the first thing we talk about is over the weekend there was a uh, fire and possibly an explosion at Iran's centrifuge site at a place called Natanz, and it's a uh, it's attributed to it. An Israeli operation. So we talk about that. Um, next thing we talk about is a GAO report that says U.S. military readiness is slipping. They're not the 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 Pentagon is not hitting its own markers. So we talk about that. Interestingly enough, in that conversation. Neither Will nor I are in favor of increasing the Pentagon budget. Uh, We talk about the Ukraine a little bit. Putin is testing Biden on the Ukraine. 
So uh, we talk about that. Sanctions are supposedly coming. And we'll see what effect that has. Angela Merkel has even engaged Vladimir Putin in attempting to de-escalate what's going on in, uh, in the Ukraine. And then uh, the last thing we talked about, or, well, second to the last thing we talked about was uh, the rate of suicide dropped sharply during the last 12 months. Why? Second year in a row, suicide has gone down in the United States. And then the, the conversation we didn't have, but gone down in the United States, but up inside the DOD. Like, wait a minute. What's going on with that? So that in the news. And then we just had a little bit of a conversation about uh, about the uh, investigation, uh, the 15th Mew investigation that we've been talking about for a couple weeks. Uh, things that make sense and don't make sense to us as we... Uh, As these things kind of roll around in our heads after uh, we talk about them. So don't touch that dial. This program repeats itself momentarily. I'm Mike McNamara. This is All Marine Radio on the All Warrior Radio Network. Thank you very much for listening. Grant Newsham coming on tomorrow to talk about, uh, about the South China Sea. And the, um, let's see. Most importantly, don't be afraid to go change somebody's life. And if I can help you, let me know. I'd be happy to. So, on that note, I'm out. Post-traumatic winning uh, graduate support group has its second meeting tonight. Fired up about that this week. And uh, and then we, we kick off the second seminar on Wednesday. So excited about that. You know, my dog Joey here. Joe, he when he hears this song, he comes running. <laughs> he knows I'm done. So when I put this <laughs> when I put this music on, Joe comes running in the room. Huh. Anyway, have a great day. Don't be afraid to help somebody. And if I can help you, let me know. I'd love to. See you tomorrow.